This podcast contains language that is not appropriate for children. This includes, but is not limited to, damn, ass, cocknose, cum dumpster, fuck trumpet, and Scott Bayo. Tonight's episode is brought to you by homeopathy. Homeopathy. For when you want to say fuck medicine, let's get drunk on pseudoscience instead. Or water. I mean. Well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I've had a cough for like way longer than I would like and... I need some, like, homeopathic tuberculosis or something to get over it. I don't know what the cure is, but it's really fucking annoying. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, it's okay. I'm just, I'm going to try, I'm going to try not to, like, cough during this recording session so that you don't yeah, have to edit it. you've been sick for a couple weeks now. It's, it's, it's really annoying. It's like, it's I... Made, it's made editing really annoying, Oh, too. I, hey, like, I didn't cough I, that much. I, I, you didn't cough at all. No, was, no, I, no, I, like, I really, I held it in, then I had just, like, this disgusting coughing fit afterwards, because I'm just a filthy human being. I mean, you are a woman. I know. I, I'm going to work. I'm going to, like, that's, like, going to be a thing now. I'm going to work in, like, at least, like, one, like, misogynist statement into, yeah, like, every that's, single intro. That's so fine. Like, that's... Anybody, like, their first listen to the podcast, they're going to be like, who the fuck is this asshole? And why is she just, like, just taking that? And I'm, and I'm just there. I'm just like, I'm I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Just just glad that I'm in your presence on <laughs> this internet is, radio. This is, the one, this is the one hour a week I'm able to talk to somebody outside of my house. This, so. That's it. I Otherwise, I'm, I'm crying and doing laundry <laughs> and, like baking pies and tending for children and- have like just having babies like every day it's, i have another baby they walk out and it's just that's like, how that's how republicans think it works yeah that's totally why, that's why they're they're opposed to uh, no to, i am i am just a i am a cooking cleaning crying baby factory <laughs> and that like i mean i think whenever anyone thinks of me that they're just like oh yeah that's her she's just a cooking cleaning cleaning crying baby factory isn't that i was gonna say that's uh yeah. I mean, all women, but uh, like obviously, that that's what I put out into the world. I am just that. That's it. Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Science Enthusiast Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Natalie. I'm your good friend this week. I think last week sure. I was maybe just your so-so friend. So-so. So so. We're, so we're we're back. Been, you've been promoted. Wow! Wow! I'm I'm super. And stoked. who says women don't get promoted? See, we we can oh, always bring this shit. back to some sort of yeah. like misogyny. <laughs> if we want, yeah. Oh, it'd be it'd be funnier if it weren't like a real problem. I know, I know, because you you did you just promoted my friend status, and um, I I should feel super grateful for that. Um, I which I do, I do. I'm happy to be your your good friend and not your so so friend. So, and I am super grateful for our God of the Week. Who okay. is our God of the Week? All right. So we're going back to ancient Greece, and our God of the Week is Hephaestus, the Greek blacksmith god. So um, Hephaestus is the son of Zeus and Hera. So his parents were like, you know, big time god and goddess of ancient Greece. Unfortunately, this poor dude was born like really weak and he had an ugly face. So as it happens with all of the ones that seem to be born ugly, he fell into the sea or maybe was pushed into the sea. Like, is this a thing that happens? Like these God parents have ugly babies and they're just like, what what do we do with this? Into the sea with you. Um, so well, anyways, you can't call it an ugly baby. Like you, you can't say, no. you can't tell a parent their baby's ugly because no, you just so, go, oh, okay, well that's a baby. 
That, yeah. yeah. So, but they made that ugly judgment call on their own, the parents. So Hephaestus goes into the sea, but luckily it was rescued by a couple goddesses, like ocean goddesses or something. So he was like living underwater for a while, maybe. And the goddesses taught him how to like be a craftsman. So he's kind of in the ocean learning to do crafts with the these goddesses i i know i know i i mean i'm i'm sure that i'm like fucking this up somehow the story but it's it's it no, is no i just like the, i just like the, no. the the visualization yeah. of doing arts and crafts yeah, underwater like but, made, which by the way is this the first is this perhaps the first like instance of like any sort of crafts. reference to evolution well arts oh. and crafts like underwater basket weaving i know but but also like to evolution because he, he would have to evolve maybe or mutate totally no he, he's just underwater doing like gods mac- evolve or do gods mutate both and he's just doing like macaroni pictures underwater with um, with these goddesses. But anyways, he moves on to bigger and better things like blacksmithing. Um, so he was born weak and ugly and all that. And I'm, I'm guessing he probably remains sort of ugly. That that's that's unconfirmed from my sources. Um, but he became really strong, so that's good. He put his effort into that, and he did some cool shit. Like he made thunderbolts for Zeus to then use in you know war whatever um why would would, like your your father abandoned you why would you like throw him a bone and and help him out there i don't know it's just daddy issues i guess so Mm. um i guess it was just like compensating for being ugly so he's like i'm gonna be strong and i'm gonna make thunderbolts and though he then he lucked out sort of in the love department he married aphrodite who is i guess pretty hot she wasn't totally faithful but supposedly hephaestus had like for all his you know being strong tough whatever he seemed to have a pretty mild temperament, and I think he just let it roll off himself um, that his, I, you know, his wife cheated on him and his parents threw him into the ocean when he was born. I mean, I guess he got kind of got over that's it. A, that's a lot of trauma for, for anybody to go it's, through. Not it's, even. A lot of, it's a lot of trauma, but um, that's our God. He later became Vulcan to the Romans because, you know, why not borrow from other people's stories? But uh, yeah, so I mean, I guess though, it's like, in general, he wasn't a dick. And I guess when I'm looking for my God, I'm like, oh, just don't be a dick. Um, so I guess Old Testament, you know, God could take a take a note from Hephaestus and yeah. not be a dick, you know? So, um, so that's it. And uh, we'll, you know, sort of worship him when we're blacksmithing this week, I guess. So did he learn to blacksmith while underwater? Because how does that even work? I... You know, I I don't know. I'm, I guess my sources are pretty unreliable. Um, like, yeah, I don't I don't have any eyewitness accounts of him blacksmithing and um, okay. doing that. But but yes, there these these stories. Way, I feel like, I, I honestly, know. I feel I feel like the story is a little made up. I I feel like I just made it up while I was saying it. Like, I mean, these stories are something that I mean, I, I feel like it's drunk history every time I'm telling these, even though I'm not drunk. Because they make, you know, they make as much sense as, I guess, as any fairy tale would. So, yeah. Well, actually, no. These make way less <laughs> sense. Say, no. say, looking at no. you, New Testament. Tonight, we are delighted to be joined by Michael Marshall. Marsh is the project director at the Good Thinking Society. He's one of the organizers of QED, 
co-host of Skeptics with the K podcast and the host of the Be Reasonable podcast, and somehow he has found a moment out of all of that to um, join us today. So thank you, Marsh, for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. I always like to uh, to chat to people all around the world in this kind of uh, this community of skepticism. It's always fascinating to me. So um, I want to start just where I like to start with a lot of people, whether um, we're starting with their atheist origin story or their like skeptic origin story. Like I want to know how you got to enter this world of skepticism. Yeah, it's hard to really remember, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't remember a time when I uh, didn't feel passionate about the kinds of situ- kind of issues that we, we deal with in scepticism. You know, I've always been the person amongst my friendship group growing up who uh, had an issue with people saying they're talking to the dead if you can't prove it and those types of things. But I was always kind of, I'm sure a lot of other people have had the same experience where your friends would be like, well, fine, yes, that's nonsense, but why does it matter? And I was always the one saying, well, it does matter because it isn't right, it isn't true, and it's you know people are being conned into this, people are being uh, told to believe this and paying money for it and things like that. So... Um, I've always kind of cared about it. But I didn't really know skepticism was a thing. And I think I kind of stumbled my way into a couple of podcasts. And then just one day listening to uh, a few different shows, I remember thinking, is there any skeptical group in Liverpool where I live? Happened to Google that. And the only thing that uh, uh, came up if you Googled Liverpool skeptics was a guy, a random stranger online saying there should be a skeptical group in Liverpool. Um, and that was Mike Hall, who's uh, the president of the, the most skeptic society now. But um, yeah, I, I emailed him overnight and uh, it was founded the very next day, really. So um, that was February 2009. And uh, it feels like I've known Mike my entire life, really bizarrely. And it's, uh, it, we just immediately hit it off. And that's kind of how... I got into skepticism, but um, when we started the Merseyside Skeptic Society, I kind of took the uh, position then of thinking there's so many different things you can do in skepticism. And Mike always wanted to do a podcast, so we had Skeptics of the Day, uh, Skeptics of the K, uh, lined up as an idea pretty early on. But I just started thinking, what else can you do? You can blog, you can kind of uh, go undercover, you can talk about this, you can talk about that. And I just tried to throw myself at every different topic, every different angle I could, and, and see what stuck really. And I think that's kind of how I would always. Uh, advise people who want to get into being an active skeptic is to uh, don't initially limit yourself as to to what you could be doing. Um, Do as as much as you might be interested in. And then the second something is less interesting, uh, drop it because it might not be the thing for you. And you pretty soon you'll find your your niche, you'll find what your skill set can bring and what your uh, your background brings really. And that's that's how I got into most of the stuff that I do, I think, really. I was yeah, it, it really it really shouldn't be like a job. It shouldn't be something that you dread doing like, oh, I have to I have to, you know, do, you know, another podcast or have to do another blog or have to have to do something. It should be like just like you said, you you figure out what works for you, what in and especially what, you know, the people, your readers and listeners, what they respond to and then do more of that. Yeah, I think that's it, and I think you you can be read, you can be led by your your readers and your listeners, or you can be led by just the thing that you've got a passionate, burning desire for. And right, uh, right. It, it might be that you you don't get that many people reading it and listening it, but listening to it. But if it's what you want to do, uh, then do it. But uh, yeah, so I agree, it shouldn't be a chore. Um, I mean, it could be it's, a job almost... in that it, it's literally my job <laughs> these days. Right. It's what I do right, for a living. Right. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it should be something you're always interested in doing and uh, and, and never dread. Well, yeah. I, when I was listening to your um, interview with um, Grant and Clay on the Prison Podcast, so, like one of the things that stuck out to me was you were kind of talking about like, you know, you like look for a purpose in life, right? And mm. so you come across this world of like pseudoscience that can be exposed and uncovered and you've just thrown yourself into it. So I just think that that's a pretty cool 
thing to kind of find that calling and just dive headfirst into it. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's obviously what you've done. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it was, really. And it, it, I, I think... Uh, I was always somebody who was very interested in science growing up, but uh, and and you know all the way through school, things like that was very kind of uh, in the, the top of the class in terms of science or, or, or thereabout, and happened to go down a humanities route at university. And I think because I've always had this this background interest in science, I realised that I had more of an interest not in the uh, the phenomenal ground that's been broken in science and the brand new things and new discoveries and, and things that were that are that have been discovered. I never saw myself being that person, but I'm absolutely fascinated by why people believe uh, in bad ideas, why people are seduced by by bad ideas, and what we can do to try and lessen the impact of uh, of those ideas of the people who try and push these ideas whether knowingly or unknowingly uh, selling ideas that are that are nonsense really so yeah i think just throwing yourself at everything and, and seeing what you can do is is a big kind of part of it and i'm fortunate that after you know, I, I was doing it for five or six years, spending maybe sort of 20 hours a week or 25 hours a week of my time doing it. And then uh, as a result of all that, I'm now in a very fortunate and privileged position of, of it being a full-time job with the, the Good Thinking Society charity. Um, it, it's uh, it's very exciting to be able to wake up in the morning and know that doing scepticism is, is my job and being a skeptical activist is uh, is what I do for a living now. And so can you talk a little bit about the Good Thinking Society, what that is and what your role there is? Yeah, absolutely. So Good Thinking is a registered charity uh, here in the UK. It was set up by um, Simon Singh, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know Simon's work. He's an incredibly popular international best-selling science writer. Um, and he just realized that the more he was doing, the more he was heading away from writing about real science and writing more about cautionary tales about pseudoscience. And he wrote a, a very famous book, Trick or Treatment, with uh, Professor Edzard Ernst, looking at alternative medicine. And so what he really saw was that there's this gap in the UK where we didn't have any uh, formal skeptical organization, really. We've got a phenomenal network of skeptic in the pub events and skeptic in the pub groups and they do great stuff kind of popularizing skeptical ideas and getting people enthused into it. But because everybody involved in those is, is doing other things uh, as a full-time job and they've got their other kind of interests and they want to keep their events going and they, they do absolutely great stuff, there was no strategic uh, position to take a look at what's out there and see from a, a strategic point of view if you've got the time to actually start countering this stuff. And, and lots of other uh, countries have all got national skeptical groups. And you know, in the uh, US, you've had uh, the JREF and PSYCOP and CSI and, and uh, Skeptic uh, Society and many, many others. And all around the world, the Australian skeptics got a great, uh, great national group there and lots of great local groups. Um, but we were lacking really a, a, a national uh, skeptical organization. So that's what good thinking is. And it just means that now I spend uh, my, my week and... Um, my colleague Laura, who works part-time with us, spends her time um, figuring out what we can do when we've got about, say, 50 hours a week in terms of uh, man hours uh, inside, the, inside the charity. What can we achieve if we throw 50 hours a week at uh, pseudoscience that exists here in the UK? And um, because we've had the space to be quite strategic and tactical about things, we've actually started to make some real advances and, and really start to, uh, to push back. Because I mean, what we what we find is you have people like the, um, you know, say the British Homeopathic Association, which is a registered charity, or the Society of Homeopaths, which, which is an industry body that levies uh, taxes on homeopaths. So they've got the space to and the, the finances to start lobbying for homeopathy. 
and there was nobody in any position to lobby against homeopathy and lobby for reality. And that's kind of what we're doing now. And um, we're starting to have a, a genuine impact on, especially in the area of homeopathy, is just one of the projects that we've been really looking at, but probably our most successful so far. We've had a, a genuine impact in, uh, in how homeopathy is financed in the UK. And so you you found sort of a, a target that could, you know, that could be causing harm to people like subscribing to homeopathy. And then you you're doing the work to try to make an impact there, which is pretty amazing. And so can you talk to some of the success that you've had with that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think when it comes to choosing projects, we kind of have two loose rules, really. One of which being, uh, is this something that someone's being harmed by? And the other which being, uh, is this something we can actually do something about? We can actually directly affect ourselves. We can see what the action we can take is. And so uh, when it came to homeopathy, we have this absolute scandal, really, here in the UK that we have a you know, nationalised uh, healthcare system, the NHS, but it was spending... At the time when we started looking into this, an untold amount of money, of taxpayer money on homeopathy, even though the government in 2010 did a review of uh, all the studies about homeopathy and, and came to the conclusion that this should not be funded by anyone. So even after that review happened, the government is still funding homeopathy, and that should be a real scandal. Uh, so because we had the time to figure it out, we we're actually able to uh, – I spent about – six months or so, um, sending freedom of, of information requests to every health board that's funded by the NHS in the country <laughs> in order to figure out exactly where homeopathy is being spent and actually be able to construct a map of homeopathy spending to see where the issues are. And because we've had this map together and we've been able to understand why, for example, the Southwest there's a pocket of homeopathy funding and then all around that you can't get homeopathy on the NHS. And then where I live in Liverpool, there's another pocket of homeopathy funding and all around in the Midlands, there's no homeopathy funding. So we may be able to figure out exactly what the, 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 the unique things about this, the few areas of the country where homeopathy is still funded, what those unique kind of uh, pressures were and start to push back against them. And as a result of two years really of, our, of, of running this, uh, this project, this campaign, we actually, in June of this year, got Liverpool's uh, health service to stop funding homeopathy, uh, which at one point involved us having to threaten to take them to court because we looked at the way that it was being funded and how they'd made the decision to continue funding it. And from our reading of, uh, of the, the, the laws, there was no legal basis for continuing to fund homeopathy in the way that they did. And whatever they thought about their decision-making, they, they decided to, uh, to go back on their decision and, uh, and, and do another consultation. So perhaps there was some merit in our reading of the laws. Um, but yes, yeah, so as a result of our work, Liverpool stopped funding homeopathy. We're actually anticipating, hopefully in the next week or two, another area of the Northwest will stop funding homeopathy, which will kill homeopathy on the NHS in the entire north of England. And uh, bit by bit, we're starting to push back. And we've had some pretty high-profile wins, really, in terms of this, kind of, this campaign uh, looking at homeopathy. No, that's amazing. And do you do you have any um, like after homeopathy or this, if this is a continuous project? Is there anything else, um, any other target sort of that you are you'd go for, like something like chiropractic care or some or another kind of alternative mm. medicine that is just ridiculous and dangerous? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working. So the, the homeopathy project has just been one of probably two, three dozen that we've uh, we've kind of initialized over the last two years. And so while we've been doing this big campaign about homeopathy, we've been looking at chiropractic and um, osteopathy specifically around craniosacral therapy, um, because there are so many osteopaths in uh, and, and chiropractors in the UK. And osteopathy in the UK is slightly different from uh, in the US, where I believe osteopaths are closer to 
actual medical professionals, whereas mm. here in the UK, they don't have that requirement of actually having studied medicine to be an osteopath. So an osteopath is here in the UK, as best as we can tell, indistinguishable from a chiropractor uh, to a point where the regulators can't really seem to tell the two apart. It, the actual General Chiropractic Council describes chiropractic in pretty much the same way that uh, the General Osteopathic Council describes osteopathy. We can't tell the difference between the two, really. And I'd, I'd uh, be very interested to see anybody involved in either who could clearly draw a line and say that's chiropractic and this is osteopathic so it's slightly different here in the uk um but yeah we've got uh many many uh many uh, chiropractors and osteopaths were claiming to be able to to use their uh, particular therapy to treat uh, babies for colic in particular was the claim that we were looking mm-hmm. at and what we found was that um just by doing a put a pin in a map and look for every chiropractor in a 20 mile radius and then call up each chiropractor saying we've got this six week old baby who's very colicky is there anything you can do we found pretty much most of them were if not willing to treat the baby themselves willing to recommend a colleague who could and the things they were saying they were saying things we say um this baby six weeks uh, old is that too young to have chiropractic and they were saying back to us no if anything that's six weeks too late you should be bringing in your baby the day of the birth. We have chiropractors who, are, who attend births to be able to adjust the baby as soon as it's been born, which is, I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you that you shouldn't be fiddling around with a newborn baby's spine when babies are still all kind of soft and squishy and not fully set, essentially. So it's not particularly safe. And also it's a huge waste of money. I mean, there's no evidence that it can do anything for colic. So we, no, we were writing to these, uh, the regulators and what we found was that we were making complaints and they were just ignoring us by and large and saying, well, there's no problem here. So we said, right, well, you'll get 25 complaints a month, valid complaints about chiropractors and about osteopaths until you do something about it. So for, I think, 18 months or so, um, certainly I think uh, the chiropractors have been getting 25 complaints a month from us, from just chiropractors we found that are just making these claims often about things like colic that they can't have any evidence for. No, there's no evidence. And it's also, it's just... It's dangerous for the baby, and it's also just selling such false hope to the parents, too, which, like, nobody, nobody really needs that when they have a crying well, baby. And, and, that's a, and that's a stepping stone for them, too, is if now I, I got you to believe that this, this nonsense is actually helping your child, now what else can I get you, you know, what, what can I build off of, and what else can I get you to believe and, and buy and, and subscribe to here? Yeah, I think that's it. Although I would say that uh, I'm, I'm almost certain, as, as certain as you could be, that the chiropractors actually believe what they're they're doing. I don't think they're intentionally saying, "I got you to right. do this," or so "I'll get you." I, right. I think it's just like we have the answer. We have an alternative right. system of health that's just as good, if not better, than conventional medicine. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen chiropractors uh, giving lectures that we we had some people go along to one of their lectures saying about how uh, you know uh, vaccines cause autism and it's toxic shock and chiropractic's the answer and obviously you've got some very vulnerable parents of some very vulnerable kids in that audience who they've been told that uh, chiropractic is this this miracle cure-all uh, and now they're being told at the same time avoid you know, vaccines, avoid uh, any kind of uh, medication that you shouldn't be giving kids any medication. It's all toxic. And you're now just not just saying, take this thing that can't be useful to you or have this treatment that isn't useful to you. You're now starting to push into and also ignore all real medicine, ignore the advice of your real mm-hmm. doctors. So it's it's not just the uh, the pseudoscientific treatment that it promotes. It's the anti-scientific uh, viewpoints that it uh, promotes too. Well, it's a slippery slope. And then these people, you know, start to have these sort of deeply held beliefs about, you know, science essentially being bad and harmful and all of that. And mm. I mean, it only works to the detriment of of the children. Um, and 
I don't know, just a terribly educated population if if they're going to believe that kind of pseudoscience. So yeah, and it's 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 hard because I can imagine. I mean, I'm not a parent myself, but I could well imagine that, especially if it's your first child, and you know, you're you've you've got this baby who's crying an awful lot because he's got colic, for example. Um, I could well imagine that you'd be at your wit's end, that it could be incredibly frustrating, and then that you have somebody, you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh yeah, your baby's going to grow out of it in a couple of weeks. That doesn't help you in the meantime. Um, but then you go to someone and they seem calm and reassuring and they seem like they know what they're on about and they talk about all these other children that they've seen. And I could see why you would genuinely believe it. But then suddenly you're, you're uh, in the hands of someone who's going to start promoting all this other stuff. And if you're not kind of well acquainted with the scientific method or with uh, you know, evidence-based medicine, as your, your, your average person wouldn't be because they've got too busy having other things going on in their lives. You know, they've got their, their own lives to, to run and now the life of a child to run. They can't necessarily keep up with uh, the latest developments in, uh, in medicine and things. And then I could totally understand why you would take comfort and believe this, this person who they've got a title, they're a chiropractor, they're an osteopath. A lot of people place a lot of stock in those titles because they don't know what those titles necessarily mean. So, well, they must be serious sounding titles. They must be medically qualified in some way. So I think that's... Well, they, that's have a li- they have a licensing process they have to go through and you can't... If you have a license, that means you're obviously legitimate. Well, exactly. You know, they've got uh, they've got letters after the name quite often. You know, yeah. whether those letters actually mean anything, who's got the time to look those <laughs> things up. Um, so I could totally understand why... You know, I wouldn't want to just say, well, these people, you know, they're, they're, it's, they're, they're science illiterate and that's what's wrong with them. It's just that uh, it, it can be so hard if you're not trained in, if, you're not, if you don't train yourself, if you don't uh, acquaint yourself with uh, good, standards of, good, good standards of evidence and how to question things, then I could see it would be incredibly hard to, uh, to tell fact from fiction. Um, and that's why I think that the skeptical movement is so, so important that we can uh, empower people to understand the difference. Uh, they don't have to be Steve Novella with uh, you know a, a, a degree <laughs> coming uh, up the up the wazoo and a full time uh, you know medical professional. Someone like me who uh, did an English degree at university can still also understand uh, the the way that we tell a, a, a science from pseudoscience. Well, and I think that the thing with um, you know if it's chiropractors or other proponents of alternative medicine or anything, I mean, they, they have a good command of being able to kind of sell that like feel good component to people. Mm. So when you're looking for comfort, even if you're not getting something that's effective medically, they're, 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 you know, able to provide parents with something that feels good. They might say it's, you know, something natural or something that is, you know, just, it just makes you feel better. And if you're not going in like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to think, okay, is this, you know, scientifically sound? I mean, it's, I think it's probably very easy to get kind of sucked into that world of, of just going for what, what feels good. Um, because I mean, cause I am, I'm a parent and I know, um, when my older child, when he was a baby, like I, I sure, I think my, it might've been colic. He, fucking cried like all the time and and so so like somebody told me just another parent she's like oh i i've taken my child to a chiropractor since he was i don't know like i remember just looking at her probably shocked and horrified that she was saying this to me and suggesting that i do the same but but you know people will will tell you to do stuff like that because somehow because somebody told them that it's better and it and that it works and then it'll solve all your problems Mm -hmm. and Everyone wants yeah, that. Yeah, I think you know, that's that it. silver and bullet I, solution. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. And the thing is, obviously, they, they'll sell their solutions with um, personal stories and anecdotes and emotions and kind of wrap things up in, in, uh, in, in something that's actually... I was having this conversation with a, a friend of mine. He was pointing out that when it comes to, say, uh, homeopaths who are you know, treating kind of people, uh, or treating animals even, um, the fact that they can't, have, can't be successful in what they do, but yet people still uh, feel very positive to them after their animal, for example, dies of a preventable disease just shows how good their communication skills are that they can keep that person on side. I mean, and, and not, in a, not in a malevolent trick them kind of way, but they clearly have incredibly good interpersonal skills. And I think there is something we can learn from that. Um, and we see the way that, uh, that pseudoscience, that uh, pseudomedicine uh, is, is transmitted in society through these uh, emotional stories, these individual experiences. The, uh, here's this, this dad had stage four cancer and he started taking cannabis oil and now he's turned his life around. He's absolutely fine. You know, these kind of big emotional stories. And sometimes we could, um, we could be, as skeptics, maybe a little bit sniffy about uh, anecdotes and personal stories because we can think, well, that's not proof. That's not, a, that's not data. Data is you know, numbers on a screen. It's, uh, it's statistics. It's, it's studies. But actually, it turns out that uh, those stories transmit a little bit better, I think, than, uh, than the, 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 the studies, the links. So I think one of the things we could possibly learn from, from the other side of this conversation is how to wrap up the realities of the situation that we have, how to wrap them up in more palatable, uh, palatable kind of um, formats. And I think we, we have stories, we have kind of uh, the, the, the personal side of things, the emotional side of things. So I think anything we can do to use the uh, emotional side, uh, the emotional aspect as a delivery mechanism for the hard facts that we actually have uh, would, would make us uh, a lot more make us communicate a lot better i think make us much more successful in, in getting a message across and that's maybe something we can actually learn from from uh, the, the people that we're disagreeing with really well yeah i mean there's there's great power in storytelling and anecdotes and and making a personal connection with people mm-hmm. and i think i mean that that was kind of one of the inspirations for something i'm working on um this science moms documentary just because the there's this um narrative in the kind of anti-vax, anti-GMO type like side of things where it compels parents through anecdotes, you know, not based in facts, but, you know, it it tugs at people's heartstrings in a way that sort of the pro-science and pro-evidence side maybe doesn't always do when we just present Mm -hmm. numbers and figures. So to give a like a personalized approach to it and show, okay, here's like normal moms and people who are, you know, in favor of vaccines and who think that, you know, the scientific consensus on GMOs is legitimate. Like, let's show real people telling real stories while also, like, you know, presenting facts. It's just, Mm -hmm. I guess, a shift in the way the narrative is told to maybe try to absolutely. I mean, I, I give uh, lots and lots of talks about uh, skeptical activism and skeptical projects and things like that. And one of the things I always try and do when I, uh, it, the, the way that I give talks is to, uh, to wrap everything up in quite a lot of stories. It's mainly storytelling. So uh, yeah. when I talk about psychics, I don't just say, here are the techniques that someone can use to talk to the dead. I talk about the times that I've been to see psychics that have been undercover, the, the actual events that I've seen. And use that as a as a method for saying, well, I've seen this, so how is how could this have happened? Well, either this person is legitimately psychic, or it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. 
But by actually going along, and it's something I actually say to people about seeing psychics, is that if you've never had, if you're a skeptic and you've never had that experience where you've been in an audience seeing a psychic or you've had a one-on-one reading or had your palm read or something like that, if you have the opportunity, take it every time even if it costs a little bit of money if you can afford it i mean don't ruin yourself uh, with the experience but i always say that the price of entry is the cost of an education because you can read all about cold reading and you can read the wikipedia page of cold reading and recite it uh, you know memorize it and recite it uh, in your sleep but until you've actually seen someone do it you don't know what emotional impact it's hard to tell what emotional impact that can really have how impressive it can be in that moment and if you sit in an audience for a psychic uh, a psychic show and you see 30 people there uh, who are utterly believing every word of it or let's say they have 12 readings over the course of uh, a couple of hours and all 12 of those people are believing every word of it and many of them will actually be in floods of tears genuinely touched at this falsehood that's been given to them it gives you a much more kind of subtle and nuanced view of what's going on there and i think makes you uh, a a much um, more powerful advocate of why these things are harmful and why these things uh, aren't true unless someone can prove that they're true and I think that's kind of a big thing for me. So you'll sometimes hear people who don't have those experiences say things like, well, anybody who goes to a psychic show, you know, they're, they're gullible, they deserve what they're getting. It's kind of a tax on the gullible. But I don't think you can sit in a room and have people who are grieving, who are in floods of tears, incredibly upset at what they think is a con- this connection being reestablished to someone they utterly loved and have lost. I don't think you can sit in that room and still say, well, you know, you're gullible and you deserve to be uh, built in this way. I think it makes us much more powerful because then we can come away with those personal experiences and we can relay those personal experiences to uh, to people that we're talking to as well. No, that's a really good point because I think, you know, sometimes in some situations, like just getting some answer, even if it's not real, is better than than not knowing anything. And so a grieving person or a parent looking for, you know, a cure for their sick child if someone can give them an answer, there's comfort in that. And it's, I guess you have to have empathy and sympathy and all of that for the people who are sort of getting taken by these, um, you know, charlatans mm. sometimes. And Yeah, you know. absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there is comfort in it, but obviously it's kind of scant comfort. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's fleeting false comfort. And you see this with, um, well, obviously with people who are, parents who have a sick child and you see uh, these fundraisers to send them off to some clinic in Mexico to get a uh, a, a disproven treatment that's uh, only going to end up lining the pockets of uh, of the people given the treatment and not going to help the child at all in those situations it's it's almost impossible for you to say anything because you're the one who's taken away this parent's slim hope that their incredibly ill child has this cure waiting around the corner for them and who are you to take away that you know you're the bad guy for taking that away so that's incredibly hard and similarly when you see psychics you know you can see people who they clearly are hurt they're clearly are hurting so so much and i can totally understand that you've lost someone you utterly adored and now here's someone saying well actually they're not gone they're still here and you can i can connect with them and you know if that was true then why wouldn't you take every opportunity why wouldn't you as i've seen done before remortgage your house in order to continue financing that relationship why wouldn't you arrest the grieving process and keep those wounds open but when you look at it from uh, from the, the the standpoint of what's actually happening, because you sometimes get some psychics and even some people who will uh, defend psychics uh, who don't believe that they're true will say, well, at least they're bringing some comfort. You know, they do. At least it's some answer. Some answer is better than nothing. And then when it comes to, to those situations, how I always think about it is that, um, you know, I don't believe in an afterlife. I'm an atheist. The person mm-hmm. that I've loved an awful lot 
the only connection, the only way that they still survive, that they still exist, is in the memories that I hold of them. And yet you go to a psychic and they'll plant new memories there that are not true because they've got no connection to the person you've lost. And they're like cuckoo's eggs that in 20, 30 years' time, when you look back and remember that person you've lost, which memory will you be uh, will you be remembering? The reality or will you be remembering these false memories that have been planted there? And they get mixed up in your view of that person. And in doing so, they erode the only connection you had to someone you've uh, you've loved an awful lot. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I know you weren't putting it forward, but I don't buy the uh, the idea that when people say these are that, that any answer is good and uh, that they're providing uh, comfort. Like I say, when you see well, that, these things in person, you can you can counter those kind of things because you've got the the experiences. And that has to impact their just their uh, mental health, just in general, because they're, they're, a lot of those people are still going through the grieving process, and part of that is you know just even acknowledging that yes, this is over. Like mm-hmm. you know what, what whatever happened, you know that uh, happened, and this person is no longer here now. You know, in, how do I figure out how to move on with my life, and you know, missing you know missing this piece of me, or however you know however they want to process it or or deal with it from, from that, and and. I, my fear would be like some people would use that, use a psychic or whoever, like almost as a substitute for an actual therapist, like somebody that's actually has a degree to, to talk about, you know, and, and how people, how people, because that's, that's that, because that's, that, that's, I have a terrible, I have a terrible impact on, on people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, there are people who are trained in grief counseling for a reason and, you know, uh, people will be able to, exactly. And people will be able to sort of recount the, uh, you know, the the several different stages of grief. And the last one of those is acceptance. Um, But if you don't believe, if you're told not to believe that the person's actually gone, then you'll never get to acceptance. There's no way you could get to acceptance if they're saying the person's still communicable. Um, and I think that's also true when you find people who's who uh, have a, an illness that's been uh, deemed terminal by uh, by doctors. You know, you still have that s- several different stages. And the, and the real heartbreaking thing in those cases is obviously not just the money involved. That's lying in the pockets of people who quite often uh, know what they're selling doesn't work. Um, but it's the person who has been given three months to live and spends that three months getting five enemas a day in a uh, you know in a clinic somewhere away from their family, away from their friends, not enjoying the time that they have left because they are convinced for perfectly good reasons why they would come to believe it, but from absolutely no evidence to for, for why people would convince them of it um, that this will cure them, this will keep them alive, and um, yeah, so so it's not just about the money that you lose; it's the the emotional investment and keeping that process. Uh, from from, that too from getting closure, a lot of people think that they are an exception. Like you know, like I, I, I'm gonna like hate on guys here. Like guys, tip, guys typically in general like think of ourselves as kind of low level superheroes. Like never handle like whatever comes at us. Like we're we're you know we're great at you know every, everything that we do. And you know, well, if I you know if I get cancer, I'm not going. You know, I'm not. It's I'm just not gonna die. And, and I can, you know, get this treatment here. And it's like, like you said earlier, it's, it is that, that false hope. And, and you're just viewed as a dick. If you're the one that comes in and says, well, actually that's not going to work. You would have a much higher, you know, if you actually look at the numbers, there's a much higher chance of, you know, X working or, you know, if you're terminal, uh, you know, that's a whole other, uh, you know, stages of grief, uh, process to go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, completely. So I I think I want to like go into now a little bit of how, like how we can talk to people who hold some of these fringe 
possibly a little bit dangerous beliefs. Um, mm. And I like you are the person that I think of when I think of how can we like carry on a dialogue with people who have beliefs different to us just because of be reasonable. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that people talk to you all the time about this. Um, but like, I like it, the phrase goes around a lot, like, don't be a dick, right? Like if you're, you want to talk to people about, you know, differences of beliefs, like we don't, yeah. we don't really want to be assholes. Um, and your show, um, Be Reasonable, which if anyone who's listening to this hasn't heard it before, um, maybe finish listening to this show first and then, <laughs> then go and listen to Be Reasonable, which I kind of binge listened to over the summer. Um, and the thing that sticks out when you listen to it is just how, like, I mean, you're calm and respectful of people who are saying things that are, like, I mean, pretty fringe beliefs. Mm. Like, I, I was listening, I remember listening to the one, um, there was a Wiccan woman, I believe, um, yeah. possibly talking about, and I, I, like, I might, I might be misremembering this, but, um, spells that could prevent computer viruses or something. I just remember sending a message to a friend while I was listening to it. Like, what am I actually listening to right now? This like, (laughs) just because the beliefs were, I mean, she held those beliefs and she was explaining them and they were so to me like out there, but then, so it was that, but then it was also the way you speak to your guests you know, we're well, like they're human beings. Like, well, yes, but Weird. it's like, you, I know you're literally the opposite of internet comment sections. Like, yes. That, that show, that show is the opposite of the dumpster fire. That is every like, you know, comment section on the internet. So I like, like, thank you for doing that, I guess. And put, and, and putting out that sort of vibe in terms of, how we talk to people because I think that more people need to hear that and do that. So can you kind of talk a little bit about how you got to that point of like, I want to make this show and give and have these conversations. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of um, uh, came from a, a previous podcast I was doing called uh, righteous indignation. I was doing with my friend, uh, Hilly Stevens and uh, Tristan Swill. And on that show, we started to interview people. We were interviewing skeptics and lots of people were doing that. And obviously, you know, we felt that was a ground that was well covered. But we started interviewing people who were uh, believers on the other side. And I think I'm always a a, a big believer of of let's listen to people, you know, partly because I think in those conversations, if I got someone on the show, I'm almost uh, it's almost impossible that I will convince them that they're wrong. Because they are certain mm-hmm. enough about their beliefs that they would come on a podcast with a stranger and talk about them. Yeah. So they're already pretty convinced. They're all, all already in a, a pretty secure position with their, with their belief system. So if you, there's, a, there's a couple of kind of stages that, that, I, that I kind of go through. And one is that uh, if I am going to convince them, I'm not going to convince them by shouting at them or by telling them they're wrong or, or pointing out, Here, here's all the reasons that you're wrong. Um, partly because if you are rude to people, you, they, they just shut down. They're not interested in what you've got to say. Whereas if you're nice to them, then the worst thing that happens is they come away from that conversation thinking, that person, I disagree with them, but they were nice. Mm-hmm. And when we're dealing with a lot of people who might be in the alternative health community or, or those types of things, alternative medicine community, um, they see us as the bad guys. And if they don't talk to a skeptic, they are told amongst them, you know, they'll share stories amongst each other about the big pharma shills who are paid to try and keep you getting cancer. 
I want to be the guy who they come away from that conversation, even if they don't believe that I'm right, thinking, actually, it wasn't that bad talking to him. He wasn't that, he wasn't a nasty person. He wasn't shouting at me. He didn't belittle me. He didn't insult me. We just had a nice chat and we disagree, but that's, but it happens. So that's kind of one part of it. Uh, and the other part of it is that um, if you are uh, aggressive towards somebody, if you are rude towards somebody, if you challenge it even too strongly and even, you know, fairly pol- politely, but, but, but too firmly, then all you get from them is the defenses that they've always used to rebut those criticisms. And you stay superficial. You never get sort of into, you know, their, their, their drawbridge comes up and their, the castle's uh, defences uh, are up. And you just have the same conversation that they've had a hundred times with a hundred yous in the past. And not, no one gets anywhere. It's all, all noise, but, uh, but no progress. Whereas if, you, if instead of saying you're wrong about this point, if you say, tell me a bit more about this. Why, tell me about this part of what you believe. Because when I think about it, I find this problem and I can't get over that problem. So how do you get past that problem when you're thinking about it? And if you're doing that mm-hmm. and you're actually, you know, you genuinely are interested and I'm genuinely are, uh, am interested in what my guests have to say because uh, I think it's genuinely fascinating. I'm utterly fascinated by why people hold beliefs that, are, that I disagree with. Um, but if you are quite gentle in your questioning, then instead of the drawbridge going up, you get sort of let in. And if you're gentle enough, you can kind of walk people around the maze of their own beliefs. And sometimes if you do that in the right way, you can get these little wonderful moments where because you're walking with them around this maze, you can get them to take a left turn that they've never taken before. And they're suddenly confronted by a brick wall that they didn't know was there. And you can hear that in some of the interviews. They'll sort of, you can hear the person say, oh, I, I don't know. I've never thought of that before. Yeah. And that's just a, a really lovely moment, I think. I, I really enjoy those moments where you've been able to get someone to have such a rapport with you and to feel so warmly towards you that they're willing to be kind of conversationally vulnerable and then get them to the point where they go, huh, that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, and maybe those are the things that, uh, that you'll, 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 that you might leave them with in the future. Um, so I think people often ask me, a friend of mine, my mother, my sister, my coworker believes in this weird belief over here. How do I change their mind? And the way that I, I always answer them is to say, don't hit it head on, because if you hit it head on, it's like uh, an asteroid. Uh, you know, you send up Bruce Willis to blow it up and you end up with, instead of one asteroid hitting, you end up with like 50 smaller asteroids hitting with exactly the same force and just spreads the damage way, way further. But the way to stop an asteroid impact, as, as they're currently postulating, is you send something up that's weighty enough that you hang around just next to the asteroid and, and in time, the gravity of it will slowly alter the course of the asteroid so it no longer is on the collision course. And that's how you change, how you help change people's beliefs is that you just offer enough of a little nudge now and then and then leave it and then come back and you do that in a polite way, in a gentle way. And maybe you can slowly steer them to ask themselves the right kind of questions to, to alter their course and they don't end up uh, exploding and, uh, and damaging your relationship, damaging your friendship, really. So, yeah, that's kind of the motivation of uh, Be Reasonable. And then occasionally I get someone on it who is extraordinary with their views and incredibly rude towards me and that's happened on, on quite a few shows but with those people I you think well I could be rude back and be cutting but what do I achieve other than to show that I'm just as uh, capable of getting down in the mud with them I'd rather just stay polite and let them be the ones knocking around the mud by themselves right I think it's just just your the way that you model having a conversation and that yeah and there are the times like you know people will will get fired up or you know, a little angry or a little just, you know, sticking to exactly what they believe. And 
I guess it's just holding calm and being the reasonable person. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it's, it, it's all about, for me, it's about what, when you have these conversations, not just on the show, but, you know, I go to mind, body, spirit festivals quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about what you seek to get out of it. And if your definition of success is I've changed that person's mind, prepare yourself to be disappointed an awful <laughs> lot. But if your de- definition of success is I learned as much about why that person holds that belief as I possibly could have done, then to get to that success, inevitably your tactics have to change because you need that person to be able to, to open up to you, to talk to you. And that's when you start being much more gentle and much more kind of uh, probing, but much more kind of like polite about it. And so I just need to, I want to learn as much as possible from not just my guests on the show, but when I'm having these conversations with someone who believes something I disagree with in real life. Because I think even if I can't change your mind, you'll arm me with all of your logic, all of your points, all of your facts, all of your reasoning. And then when I meet someone who might be halfway down that path, I know what the next five corners are for them and I can arm them. So when they come up uh, across the same points, they've already got the, the challenging point, the rebuttals to those before they know those are actual points. So it's actually not just about the person I'm speaking to. It's about the next person I speak to who might believe a similar thing. Well, and I guess it kind of helps, you know, the, the skeptic to have a conversation with somebody who has these, you know, sort of deeply held fringe beliefs just as an educational experience for ourselves, right, to kind of learn how to have these conversations. Because I think often we end up in conversations with like-minded people, like, you know, like, the, you know, the three of us are probably of the same mindset about a lot of things. Um, and I can't think of the last time I really had a conversation with somebody who genuinely believes in psychics, you know? Mm. So to have the experience of just how to talk to people about their beliefs, approaching them just as, you know, a fellow person, um, I know that probably sounds like basic common sense, but it's probably not an experience that a lot of us have often. So, <laughs> no, but I mean, know. I think why would you why would you not want that? I think I mean this, I this is the reason I kind of come to came to skepticism. I think because because it's a great uh, throwing yourself into things like this is a great tool for collecting interesting stories. And I want to be able to come home at the end of the day or to you know, talk to my friends on the weekend and say, you'll never guess what conversation I had. You'll never guess what someone told me. You'll never guess what I saw. You'll never guess what I had to drink at a mind-body-spirit festival. You know, th- those <laughs> stories are, are, are what make, are what, what keep me energized in skepticism, really. Because uh, obviously, you know, we'll do the same thing again and again because we have to, as skeptics, we have to keep explaining to people why cold reading, uh, why psychics who are talking to the dead are very often just using cold reading, why this particular alternative medicine seems to work when actually it's just activations of the regression to the mean and another kind of known uh, phenomena. Um, the way to stop those conversations getting boring is to pepper them with some of the weirdest experiences you could possibly imagine and just having these these odd stories. And I think that's what I really like. And, and also I think having these conversations with people, it's so, like, they don't talk to skeptics too much either. Not, not people who be like, I'm going to talk, I, I, I've, I've researched this area that you're really passionate about and I've got a different view. And we see it in the alternative medicine uh, world that they think we're all funded by big pharma, you know, in the, in the pockets of big pharma. We want to, to, to obfuscate and to muddy all the waters so that you can carry on getting chemicals that will give you cancer. Now, that view in part, I mean, part of obviously they, they hold that view ideologically because it, it best supports their worldview. But they can't continue to hold that view if they are constantly meeting people who disagree with them, who are on our side. Um, who aren't like that. 
And I think the same is true when it comes to skeptics. I'm sure there are before you can speak to before you speak to somebody who who holds the views that you disagree with, you might have a certain view of them. You know, a lot of people will say, well, anybody who says they're talking the dead is a knowing charlatan. They're all frauds. They're all con men. They should all be in prison. These grief vampires. They're out there doing these horrible things. And then you speak to some psychics and yeah, sure, there are plenty of con men out there and exactly telling who's a con man and who isn't is, is very difficult because it turns out no one's psychic. You can't tell what someone's thinking. Um, <laughs> but also you do meet lots of people who say they're talking, to, who believe they're talking to the dead and actually believe it. Or they believe that they can genuinely read palms or they can genuinely do this. And, and you, you come across them from time to time um, because, you know, people are incredibly good at convincing themselves that they are special. They're incredibly good at convincing themselves that they have this skill. Uh, and people are, are great at saying, well, this seemed to work. So if I do it this way forever, it'll always work. And people are terrible at saying, well, this seemed to work. So let's try and find a scenario where I break it. And then we'll see if it's real. But obviously the science, the, the scientific mindset is this appears to be real. Let's try and find a place, a, a way that it isn't real. And if I can't find a way it isn't real, it must be real. Um, whereas the pseudoscience is this appears to be real. So let's never question it in case it goes away. Um, so yeah, I think those those are kind of uh, the the reasons I guess to still have these conversations really, and also they're just fun. Yeah. You, know, you get someone uh, a naturopath in India who's yelling homophobic abuse at you and anti-Semitic uh, statements and saying the most crazy <laughs> things, and you sit and I, I sit there in the middle of the interview thinking, God, this is good radio. This is great. Radio. <laughs> so I guess just like having those experiences and getting getting out there and seeing all like all these different mindsets and worldviews and i mean it can only you know make us better yeah it, it arms you it gives you the tools to be able to counter the, these kind of arguments in the future it arms you with the the, the logic and, and the rhetoric and the personal stories that make you much more effective at, at countering them the next time you see them well and like my um i think i mentioned to you my my friend alex who organized that talk that you did we were talking about um just the, this idea of like you know in our like social media we're in these little echo chambers sometimes and mm. Do you think that this is a way to kind of minimize that, like just by actually experiencing things out in the world so that our, you know, understanding of people goes beyond just what we see in our like, you know, skeptical Facebook pages and stuff? Yeah, I think it is. Although, I mean, it, yeah, I have a, I have an issue, I guess, with, uh, with with social media and it's an issue I haven't quite found the right answer to. I mean, certainly going out and, and meeting people in person and going to a mind-body-spirit festival and, and not like shooting your mouth off and, and yelling at people, but just quietly observing and talking politely to people and seeing what they're about is, is very useful. But I think one of the issues I do find with uh, with kind of the online world is that if you look back at skepticism, even when I started getting involved in skepticism, everybody had a blog, everybody had a, a podcast, you know, they were ten a penny and it was great. It was loads of people doing loads of stuff and inevitably all those things aren't going to continue. Um, but what interests me is that whereas there'd be a terrible story in the newspaper one day and then the next day there'd be like six at least uh, skeptical blogs about it that are there, that are findable to the world, that people could stumble over by Googling for the, the information in that news story and accidentally end up on your blog. These days that doesn't really happen. But everyone's got a Facebook page and everyone says, I saw this story and isn't this terrible that the latest thing in the Daily Mail is absolutely awful? Which is great because all your Facebook friends, who are probably also skeptics anyway, will see that you have the right opinion on that story. No one who's going to believe that story will ever see your Facebook wall because of the way that Facebook works. And so there is, the debunk is not happening in the world. Uh, and even worse, Facebook will see that you've linked that story in the middle of it. You've linked to that Daily Mail article. So they'll go, well, lots of people seem to be linking to this. And lots of people are clicking like yeah, and commenting trendy. on this one with a link in. So let's promote that because clearly this is an important website. This is an important link. 
and you active, accidentally actively promote the thing that you're debunking and never promote the debunk with it. So I think, yeah, having your opinion shared on a, uh, a, a page that's outside of your own paywall, that's outside of your own, uh, your own privacy controls is, is, is important. Um, but I think equally, we're guilty of that. The alternative medicine people are very guilty of that. So you go looking for um, alternative cancer cures. Again, you used to see a million different blogs and they, they'd all get hit by regulators or they get complained about by skeptics or they, get, they draw attention and ire and things like that. These days, there's fewer of them, but there are loads, absolutely loads of Facebook groups promoting cannabis oil to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. A hundred of them, a thousand of them, however many of them. And we don't see them because we don't join them. And all these conversations are happening behind their own paywall somewhere. So I think the way to break out your own social media bubble, luckily, is if you're willing to do it to yourself, is follow accounts you disagree with. Follow the people who are promoting the stuff that we, that you uh, dislike on on Twitter. Uh, join the groups, or you know, to 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 see what's being said. In the or even if you don't join the groups, quite a lot of them are open groups. So just bookmark a couple and pop in now and then to see what's being said, and you'd be absolutely astonished at just how dangerous the misinformation there is, because it's a wild west that we as skeptics have siloed ourselves off from and they as 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 believers for want of a a less kind of uh divisive and pejorative term um have also siloed themselves siloed themselves off from so um yeah i'm not sure quite yet what the answer is to that but i think there is an under underground there's an under kind of current um that we we just don't see and we can think that uh the world's getting more skeptical and it probably is i mean certainly uh, you know parts of our society getting much more savvy when it comes to certain alternative medicines but there are some crazy, crazy conversations happening out there that we, we by and large don't see. Well, and I mean, so there's that wild west of the internet with all kinds of stuff happening. Then there's also the the skeptical world that, you know, exists out there. But then we'll be getting together um, next month at QED, some little bit of the skeptical world. So can you talk a little bit about um, QED for anyone who... Uh, doesn't know, just as a chance for people to get together and, um, I don't know, have some of these conversations in real life as opposed to on the internet and on podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. QED is uh, is the the conference that uh, I run with uh, five of my friends, uh, well, my my wife and four of my friends. (laughs) She is also a friend, but uh, we are married. Um, But yeah, so there's the six of us uh, are sort of joint partners in putting this uh, this conference on in Manchester, and um, it's the 14th to 16th of October. And this year, we're going to have about 600 skeptics there, which is the biggest we've ever been, which is uh, pretty exciting. And it's just our way of we, we hire out an entire hotel. And uh, this year, we've hired out all five conference rooms in this hotel. And we've got something going on in all of the rooms pretty much at all times. So it's, uh, we, we like to make choices very difficult for people as to what you're going to go and see. So I chose but- a good year to come, I guess. For my first yeah. QED. That's, well, normally yeah. we only have two. We have two rooms. We normally have the, the main stage speakers, and then we have a panel room running at the same time. Whereas this year, we've also added a podcasting room, and we've added a workshop room where we've got workshops. Um, one of my one of the workshops I'm particularly excited about, and I wish I could attend, is we have uh, an award winning investigative journalist who um, has won many many awards working with the BBC, and he now teaches investigative journalism uh, as part of uh, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And he's going to teach an hour class on investigative journalism. If you want to investigate stuff, here is an, uh, an award-winning expert in that area to take you through an hour's worth of investigative techniques, which I think would be absolutely fascinating. Um, That's awesome. 
So yes, we've got 600 people coming. And I think, uh, depending on when this show goes out, there may still be tickets. We're selling tickets up until October the 3rd. And I think as okay, of... Okay, well, we're, we're out on October 5th with this show. So too ah, late, So you everybody. missed the boat. There too you go. Late. Well, as we're recording, we've got 20 tickets left. So I'm sure right. those will be gone anyway soon enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about this year. We actually have, you know, we've got people who come from all over the world now. And, you know, yourself coming from uh, America is, is testament to that. Um, and I think everyone gets what it's about, that it's about the community. It's about everybody who comes kind of makes the event their own. And that's what we've always wanted it to be, really, is just let's get 600 people who are all equals in a room for the course of a weekend and just let them, let everybody meet each other. Let's put faces to names. Let's let's have conversations and discussions and maybe even start um agitating for, uh, for for projects to start up. So I'd love to see off the back of a QD an activist project here or a podcast there or, or some kind of uh, further projects that can uh, that can move on and, and start taking sceptical messages into the world and challenging uh, pseudoscientific messages too. Well, I, I'm really excited to attend and just, you know, see some talks, have some really great conversations. And um, thank you for, I, I mean, I know you're in the midst of organizing this. So thank you for taking the time to, talk to us and thank you for just i guess doing all that you do to promote skepticism and rational thought because you know it's obviously needed out there in the world so but it's um, it's a huge amount of fun as well i mean i'd say it's not like i'm making that many sacrifices i I absolutely (laughs) bloody love it you know the the number of different areas that you get into and and it's it takes you to strange positions you know i mean I'm, i'm speaking in australia in november they're flying me out to speak in australia i mean i don't know when else in my life i could have been flown to uh, the other side of the world to talk about some of the strange conversations i've had and the weird adventures that i've had and i mean one area of, of skepticism that i look at a lot is is, uh, is how much of the the newspapers are actually stories that originally are sourced from a, a, a public relations company and that's kind of a big area that i've looked at as kind of quite a niche area and as a result of the work I've been doing in that area for five, six years, I now like teach fairly regularly on official journalism degree courses at university just because I started looking into that and, and got quite far down that rabbit hole and now they bring me in to talk about these things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating where skepticism can take you if you throw yourself at it and have the, have the enthusiasm to, to uh, keep it up and to, to follow the threads of the stories wherever they'll take you and just uh, trust that, uh, that if you go with it in the moment, you'll end up somewhere interesting. I think uh, that's, that's what I really passionately believe in skepticism and um, I've, I've enjoyed everything. I've done a huge amount. Well, it's awesome. So thank you for talking to us. If people want to, I guess, find you online, where can they find you? Um, so uh, you can find me, uh, I'm on Twitter as Mr. M. Marsh. Uh, you can see my work with Good Thinking Society with, uh, with Simon and Laura and Johnny at Good Thinking Society. If you go to goodthinkingsociety.org and uh, you can find my podcast on iTunes. But if you go to merseysideskeptics.org.uk forward slash podcasts, it's got all our podcasts and things there. So I'm spread around the internet and I'm, I'm usually pretty easy to find on it. Awesome. Thank you. And um, I'll see you at QED. Yeah, see you in a couple of weeks. Why do we love the internet this week? Um, I pretty much love the internet for anything that makes me start cracking up in public. So whether it's a podcast like 
god awful movies, which I cannot it, listen to in public anymore. I, I do, um, and I don't I care that people see me like just laughing like for no reason, and like just look at me, and I'm like, it's okay. Like, no, I'll I, I can't, I can't. Like, I, I had a couple incidents like at the gym when I was trying to, you know, focus on something other than laughing, and I, like, I was that person, just cracking up. So, anyways, uh, I, I like when the internet makes me laugh. Sort of inappropriately in public, but not so much as I look completely crazy. So um, this uh, Twitter account, which is also a Tumblr, um, is Kids Write Jokes. And the description is simple. Um, I moderate a kids jokes website. These are genuine submissions by kids. So, you know, just get ready because these these jokes are just so like intellectually stimulating that I mean, I don't know that you're going to be able to get it. I was going to say prepare to be underwhelmed. Yeah, so there's like, you know, is Hermione in Harry Potter hot? No. Yes, she is. That's the joke. Everybody start cracking up right now. Like, that's a joke. Then um, if you go to the, let's see, like, and I can't read these because I find them so funny because they're so stupid. But they're kids. I shouldn't call kids stupid. You're smart and you're the future. No, it's a, it's a, (laughs) kids are dumb. Kids are dumb. Like I say this, I say this having been like as a former public school teacher, kids are dumb. Kids think that they can get away with like whatever stupid shit they're trying to do. And it's really more often than not as a teacher, you're, you're letting them get away with just enough so that they think that they're getting away with stuff. But then of course you don't want them to do like any, anything like completely stupid. So it's just, it's just, it's just a judgment call. of I'm going to let them think that they're getting away with this. I know this is going on and I'm sure there's stuff that I don't even know that's going on. And I don't want it. I have no desire to know what any of that is because it can't be good. But otherwise there, I just, just as long as you're not like killing anybody or like hurting anybody, like, I'm just going to yeah, let you get away with it. And they're just telling really funny jokes. Like, why did the Skittle go bo- go bowling? The answer to that question is because he is part of bowling. The Skittle, I guess, is part of bowling. Um, what will happen if you added water, ice, fire, and food? Nothing. Like, I like I, I kind of love these kids. That's a fact. It, it is. It's a fact. It's a fact. What do you call a dinosaur with no eyes? Dan, what do you call a dinosaur with no eyes? Come on. What um... I, I, I don't know. The answer is shut up. <laughs> Just, okay. That's it. What do you, how do you Yeah. Here, here's another. Here's one. Uh, how do you say poop in Chinese? It probably just says poop, right? Boobs. Oh. <laughs> well, boobs, because, I mean, boobs are always on everybody's A 12-year-old, like, the, like the, the one 12-year-old that's listening to, the, to us that shouldn't be right now, go, <laughs> go, to, go to sleep. But also, uh, he's like losing his shit right now because because we said boobs. <laughs> because we said boobs. Just, yeah. The um, man the the man says, "Would you like cash?" And the other man says, "No, I want peanuts." Peanuts is in all caps. Of course, of course, it is. Kid kids talk in constant caps lock. Um, why do monkeys eat banana? Because bananas are not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And then, why did the cow cross the road? <laughs> because he's an idiot. <laughs> I mean, but also cows are, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here, here's one. Why do cows sleep? Because they're tired, I bet, right? No. So oh. they don't wake up. So they don't wake up. No, And no punctuation in there. So they don't wake up. Oh, so these cows Where are really going for the big sleep. Yeah. 
What do you call a UFO that looks like a butt? A butt. A butt a foe. <laughs> See, I, think I shouldn't find these as funny as I do, but and I then do. We'll do, do the last one here. <laughs> Literally, it's just these two words. Hello, idiot. <laughs> All right. See, don't don't you kind of love the internet because of that? I Come mean, on. that's yeah. a thing. Who doesn't like butts and boobs and kid jokes? Okay, I lied. Here, here's a, here, here's okay. the last one we'll do. Why do vampires eat blood? Because they're thirsty. Because if they didn't, I don't know what they would do. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I mean, that's it's accurate and <laughs> yeah, and also not what you expect. So. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for joining us for this week's episode. If you enjoyed listening, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, you can reach us at podcast at com. You can also find our full podcast archive at com slash category slash podcast. Follow the podcast page on Facebook, Natalie's page, Skeptical Parenting, and my page, A Science Enthusiast. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash TSE podcast to get access to premium content as well as extended interviews and other nuggets of goodness. Uh, we understand that not everybody can financially contribute to the show. and That's OK. Just tell your friends about us because that's how we grow our listenership. But uh, we would like to thank James, all three of the Michaels, Alice, Joanna, Chris, Janet and Sarah, who are patrons of our show. Natalie, hit us with a quote. Wait, I have to cough, so you're going to have to do that again. The the hit us with a quote. Hold on. I, I, I don't have to because I can edit out your cough. Oh, well, anyways. All right. What's this? Like a woman telling a man what to do? Like, <laughs> the fuck? Oh, man, but don't make me laugh because it makes me cough more. It's, it's all connected and terrible. All right. Curiosity, especially intellectual inquisitiveness, is what separates the truly alive from those who are merely going through the motions. And that is one of my favorite authors, um, Tom Robbins. Not a scientist, not a, you know, famous like atheist or anything that we usually do, but um, I, in my my free time, do the super exciting thing of scrolling through um, Goodreads and looking at Tom Robbins quotes. That's That's one of my hobbies. So... You you want to hang out with me on the weekends, don't you? Yeah, you must yeah. be fun at parties. I'm well, actually, I am really fun at parties too. So you are you were you were fun to hang out with. At, I am uh, at Nexus back in May. I am. I am. I am super fun to hang out with. So yeah, and I can look at you know literature quotes with the best of them too. So you know both. <laughs> Why not both? Well, th- well, thank you. For- <laughs> yeah. Thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule of looking at uh, meme websites and quotes. and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, seriously, like, I, I mean, meme websites, quotes, and I'm fun to hang out with. Oh, my God. Like, I am just <laughs> wonderful and awesome. So, yeah, you're lucky to do this with me. Whatever you say. Yeah. Um, do, oh, why don't you tell everybody who we have next week as our as our guest? And we are very excited to say that next week our guest is going to be Lawrence Krauss. Yeah, we we've had that um, interview kind of recorded for ages. It feels like at this point. So um, super excited to to play that for everybody. Next
next week. Yeah, and it was it was it, like half the time it's kind of like I'm talking to Lawrence Krauss right now, but then the other half the time it was just really really good stuff. Yeah. So see, again, it's just that the weird and wonderful thing of what we get to do. I, and, yeah, and, yeah, and I think I think I think having like I've already, I've listened to it, I've edited it already. I think like both of us like it doesn't sound like we're fangirling over him, but like the second like he hung up from the call with us, I think we both went like holy fuck, like that just really happened in real life or but it's cool. it's it's a really good yeah, it's a really good interview and so I and if if you like the show, I know I know you absolutely love it. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me this week, Natalie. You're welcome, Dan. That sounded super formal. And um, yeah, just you're welcome. <laughs> I'm I'm always formal. All business all the time. Yeah. All business all the time. That's, yeah. that's what I do. All right. Well, uh, we'll reconvene next week after I've looked at more memes and Tom Robbins quotes online. The music you heard tonight was written and performed by Adam Johnson and was used with his permission. You can contact Adam at adamjohnsondc at gmail.com. This podcast is property of Not Narrow or Straight LLC, all rights reserved.